Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Boy, it's good to see you, church family. Good morning. It's so good to see you. And if you are a visitor, boy, we're glad to see you too. So thankful to have you. If you're here, maybe traveling in town for the holiday or um, visiting family, or maybe you're here just because you're curious or thought Easter was a good time to be here at church, we're so glad to see you today. You are our honored guest. We're um, so pleased to see you and to have you and to uh, get to know you and want to encourage you to make sure that if you get a chance, fill out a connect card, see somebody back at the welcome desk. We got, I think, some nice people today, right, Todd? There's some, there's some nice people back there today that will greet you, and I think they might have a gift for you, not just Todd's pretty smile. And we're thankful that you're here, and if you're visiting and maybe not too familiar with church or haven't been around church too much, you may be wondering, well, isn't it Easter, and this hasn't really seemed too much like an Eastery type service. I got a couple things to tell you. First of all, it's not our April Fool's joke to not do an Easter service today. That's not the thing. Secondly, I would argue that me wearing a floral print shirt is Easter enough for you today. And I definitely am wearing floral print. But the third thing I'd tell you is this, that Easter most certainly is recognized as a holiday in our culture, but it is a way of life. Easter is a way of living. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central, motivating, powerful message of Christianity. There are plenty of religions in the world that have ethical, moral teachings. Did you know that? More than just Christianity. There are other religions and other beliefs and other worldviews that have ethical, moral teachings. There are other faiths, religions, and worldviews that have heroes who die for their people, that lead their people, and even die for them. But there are no faiths, religions, or worldviews that have a Savior who died for them and then came back to life, resurrected from the dead. Because that power to come back to life from the dead is reserved only for the giver of life who is God and Jesus was God and still is today. So I brought you this morning uh, to Acts chapter 2, which is the very first gospel sermon we have recorded, the very first Christian message, you might say, post the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, where on the day of Pentecost, the apostles were gathered together and the Holy Spirit came upon them and Peter began to preach like the rest of them. And we have Peter's words recorded. And what we learn is that the central message of the church, of the preachers, of the teachers in the first century was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Over and over they were preaching this core understanding that Jesus Christ did die. And that means a lot of things. But he also raised back to life. And you've got to understand what that means. And it's been my experience that, yes, non-Christians, but also Christians are kindly familiar with the death of Jesus. They understand sort of the aspect and the story of the death of Jesus. 
they understand the sacrificial nature of Jesus. Even people who aren't Christians kind of have a connection to uh, the message of Jesus Christ as a Savior who died for his people. And even people who aren't Christians can articulate or know that Jesus Christ came back to life. In fact, I was just testing my kids yesterday to make sure the theology was sound. And I was like, hey, what does Easter really mean? You know, I started to grill them a little bit to make sure they could stay in the family. And um, <clears throat> if I heard any bunny talk, it was going to get, no, I'm just kidding. And, and you know, immediately, um, you know, Elena tells me, well, what's Easter really mean? You know, I'm asking. She says, well, Jesus came back to life. He came back from the grave. I'm like, that's great. That's exactly right. And I think there are a lot of people that probably could tell us that information. That Easter is about Jesus not just being dead, but coming back to life. But what we're going to learn in our passage this morning is what I'm concerned about that many Christians don't really know, and that is the power of the resurrection. That what the resurrection is actually supposed to do to your life. That if you're here today and you are a believer or maybe even a non-believer, that there's a message inside of the resurrection that is not just meaning to get together with our family and eat a particular meal on a particular Sunday once a year, but there's a meaning inside of the resurrection that is life-changing if you get it. So there's three things I want you to learn from our passage this morning. The first one is this, is that the resurrection is absolutely believable. It's believable. If you notice down in verse 29, um, Peter is preaching here and he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants, David's descendants on his throne. Verse 31 says, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, the realm of the dead, and nor did his body, his flesh, decay or see corruption. He then says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and that we are all witnesses. Point number one, get this. The resurrection is believable. Peter does not speak about the resurrection as if it's some fable, as if it's some mythological story that has great inherent meaning that you should just believe because it's a nice telling story. Peter speaks about the resurrection just like your history teacher speaks about Abraham Lincoln. He talks about facts. He talks about witnesses. He talks about events. He talks about Jesus and his resurrection just like you and I talk about any other event that happened in history. And he gives us reasons why the resurrection is believable because someone coming back to life is an unbelievable kind of an event. And here's the reasons he gives you. Number one, he says scripture prophesied about it. He said David was a prophet and he spoke prophetically concerning the resurrection of Jesus. You know, there are over 300 messianic or prophecies about this guy Jesus that he fulfilled in his life. And what we see in Scripture is that some of these prophecies are incredibly minute. They're really uh, interesting, strange details. Like, for instance, in the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 9, we see that it's prophesied that he would ride on a donkey. That's interesting. We see it's prophesied that those who would crucify him would divide his garments among them. And they do that when Jesus is on the cross. We see the detail that his hands and his feet would be pierced in Psalm 22. 
We even see in the Old Testament prophesied about this coming Savior that he wouldn't have his own tomb, that he would have to borrow the tomb from a rich man. And he does, Joseph of Arimathea. And we even see in in Zechariah chapter 11 the price for the betrayal of Jesus. Specifically, in the Old Testament, it's prophesied 30 pieces of silver. You see, the Old Testament gets down into the minute details about who this guy was going to be. But it also doesn't skip the big details, the major things, like this guy would be born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7. Jesus was told to be born of a virgin. Or that he was born in a particular town, Bethlehem, the small one, in Malachi chapter 5 and verse 2. The Old Testament tells us that the Savior would be called out of Egypt, although he would be one of God's people. That means that he was born, went down to Egypt, and then came back. And Jesus, his life, traces that chronology. We learn that Jesus, or this Savior, this Messiah, would be a man who would be rejected by his own people. Which is strange because the Israelites, the Jews, were hungry for a Savior. They were, they were dying for a Savior to come. They were desperate for a Savior to come. And any time anyone would show up and say they were the Messiah, they would latch onto them to find out if they were. And yet Jesus shows up saying he's the Messiah and he's rejected. That was prophesied. And we see that he, would, he was prophesied that he would be the Passover sacrificial final offering for sin. Genesis 22 and Exodus 12 and other places allude to this. But Psalm 16 is what Peter references. And one of the things that's prophesied is that Jesus Christ would raise from the dead. This Savior would come back to life. His soul would not be left in the realm of the dead, and his body would not see corruption. In fact, he would be resurrected. And so the first thing Peter tells us is that Scripture over and over has prophesied about this guy named Jesus, and it also prophesied that he raised from the dead. That's one of the reasons the resurrection is believable. The second reason is this that there are witnesses that tell you about it. Now, you might think, well, hey, people can make up stories all the time. In fact, you know, this is like first century fake news. If they had Facebook, they'd probably be sharing this story over and over even if it wasn't true, right? But witnesses in the first century were much different than the way that we consider witnesses today. You see, to be a witness in the first century meant that you were staking your life's reputation on what you were saying is true. And that's risky because your future business, your livelihood, your, your reputation in the community, your ability to get maybe a loan at the bank, all depended upon your reputation. And there were hundreds yet thousands of people who said, write my name down. I'm somebody who saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead. You can say, yes, Anthony from Pickerington saw this guy who was dead and is now alive. And there are thousands of people who said, write me down. I'll stake my life, my reputation on the fact that this guy came back to life. You see also in verse 33, it wasn't just scripture that told us about it or witnesses that said it happened. In verse 33, Peter says this, Jesus being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received the promise from the Father, received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, has poured out this that you yourselves are now seeing and hearing. And here's the third thing I want you to know why the resurrection is believable. Because what happened to the disciples is really unexplainable. Some 50 days before this moment, these disciples were cowardly men, uneducated, untrained. 
They were afraid of everything. In fact, at the last moments of Jesus' life, even when Peter boldly said, Lord, I'll die with you, he ran away and he denied him. All of these guys were afraid. They were scared. They were, um, uh, they were insecure. And then all of a sudden, just 50 days later, their Savior is gone and they are as bold as a lion. You can't shake them. In fact, you can't explain the reason that these people would go to their death for this guy other than the fact that he raised from the dead. In fact, it would take a more unbelievable explanation of why they would die for this than just the fact that Jesus raised from the dead. We've seen this over and over in history. You know, Watergate uh, happened in the 1970s, and there were some of the most powerful men in the world at that time. Couldn't last three weeks holding a lie without spilling it. They didn't want to give up their life, right? And yet these men would go some 40 years, never wavering, saying, I saw this guy raised from the dead, and they would die for it. The Apostle Paul is a great example as well. Saul of Tarsus was an educated man, wealthy, powerful, influential. He had everything you would ever want in this life, and he gave it all up, he says, for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. And he would go on to say that the thing I want most, Paul said, in my life is to know the power of his resurrection. The last reason the the resurrection is believable is this. Scripture prophesied, witnesses told, disciples transformed. But here's the best one we've got. The tomb is empty because of it. You see, extreme measures were taken for Jesus' body to stay in the tomb. They had heard about the fact that this guy, Jesus, was said he was going to raise from the dead. And so they would go to Pilate and they said, hey, Pilate, we're afraid that his disciples are going to come and they're going to steal his body. Let's guard the tomb. And Pilate put two trained assassins, two highly trained killers at the front of Jesus' tomb. Now you're going to tell me that 11 guys who are uneducated and untrained, cowardly men, are going to walk up to that tomb and they're going to take out two snipers, two two guys who are trained to kill people. It just isn't going to happen. And yet his body was no longer there. And the moment this um, movement started to swell and Pilate started to hear about the resurrection and other people started to hear about the resurrection of Jesus who were against it like the Pharisees, All they had to do to stop this movement was to say, hey, you think he's alive? Come here, let me show you. Here's his tomb, he's dead. Okay, be quiet, go home. But nobody could bring forth the tomb that had his body. So the resurrection to Peter and to us today is absolutely believable, although it's an incredible event. But the second thing I want you to learn about it is this, that the resurrection is not just believable, it's also incredibly powerful, life-changing. Go back up to verse 24. Peter begins his sermon by telling us about a man named Jesus who was of Nazareth. He was attested to us by God with what mighty works and wonders and signs that God was doing through him. And verse 23 says, Jesus was delivered up, I mean, gave up his life according to the plan of God. And if you look down in verse 24, he says this, God raised him up. God resurrected Jesus. And he did something when he resurrected Jesus. Here's the phrase. He loosed the pain or the agony of death. He loosed the pain of the grave. He loosed the pangs of death because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by the power and the pain of death anymore. 
You see, that phrase is incredibly important. What it's telling us is that through the death, the burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus, he defeated your greatest enemy. He defeated the very thing that is controlling your life, whether you are conscious of it or not, and that is death. Death stands at the door of everyone in here knocking, and he says he defeated death, and there's two ways he did it. The first thing that death had was a sting, a venomous blow, you might say. There's this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul talks about the resurrection of the body because Jesus raised from the dead, and he says we will raise too to a spiritual body to be new people someday. And he says, because of that resurrection, Paul declared death to be defeated. He said, oh, death, where is your victory? You've lost, death. But then he says this rhetorically. Oh, death, where is your sting? Meaning, where's your power? Where is your hurt anymore? You see, death, he says, the sting of death was sin. And you and I, in death, if we still had our sin, would have our destiny sealed apart from the giver of life, God. We will be separated. So you and I live in this life and we sin, we fall short of the glory of God. And the moment we die, our fate is sealed that we are separated from God. That's the sting or the venomous blow of death that we still have sin. And so when we die in sin, we're separated from God. But the resurrection of Jesus declares to us that God has accepted this offering for our sin to forgive us. Now death to the believer in Jesus Christ no longer has that sting. It no longer has that ability to cause us to have our fate sealed for all eternity. He would tell us this this way in Romans chapter 6. Just listen to these words. I'll read it for you in verse 3. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together with him in the likeness of his death, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his. Now listen to verse 6. We know that our old self, our sinful self, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we who are enslaved to sin might no longer be enslaved for he says in verse 7 for one who has died has been set free from sin now if we have died with Christ we believe that we will live with him we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again death no longer has power over him for the death he died he died to sin once for all but the life he lives he lives to God now here's the answer for you so you also must consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. You see, what the resurrection does is it eliminates our sin from us. If we are in Jesus Christ, it takes that old man who was once in us that was sinful and crucifies him or her so that they are done away with. And when we raise, we're raised to a new life that is a life without sin. And so death for the Christian now does not stand in front of us with a sting that says when you die you're separated from God it says when you die you're reunited with God so death has its sting taken away that's the first way Jesus defeated death the second way is this he defeated not just the sting but the strength or the power of death you see death without resurrection try to think about this for a moment death without any resurrection limits your life 
to the here and now. And if you're lucky, Lord will give you, let's say, 70, 80, 90 years of span of this life. That's what the average age expectancy is right now. And if you have, if you have in your mind that death and there is no resurrection, all you have is this life to live. And that leaves you with two ways to live. One is to live in an indulgent way. You say to yourself, well, this is all I've got. I've got 70, maybe 80 years max if the Lord is good to me. I'm going to live it up. I'm going to suck everything out of this life that I can. I've got to indulge in everything because this is all I've got. Or you live the other way, which is timid, saying, this is the only life I have. And if I mess up one little thing, I just ruin my life, and this is all I've got. Do you see how death without resurrection limits you to life here and now and causes you to live either indulgent or timid? And both of those ways of living are fragile and they'll leave you with immense disappointment. If you live indulgently saying, this is all I've got, I'm going to go for it, I'm going to suck the marrow out of life and give me all I've got, you will eventually hit a point where you say, bummer, it's all over. Now what? It ends in disappointment. And if you live this life timid and afraid to mess up and you say, I've only got one life, I can't mess up any part of it, you're going to get to the end of your life and say, and I did mess up. Bummer. I didn't live it right. You see, these two extremes of living your life under the power of death finds that death's greatest power is actually your fear. Your fear that this life is all there is. Fear either says, I'll miss out, so I've got to indulge, or I'll mess up, so I've got to be afraid. But either way, it's the fear that this is all you've got that's driving your life. And fear is Satan's manipulation of you to get you to sin. To either indulge or to be afraid. And in Hebrews chapter 2, listen how um, the Hebrew writer says this in verse 14. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook in the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver us, Christians, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ paved a way for us to know that eternal life is possible and that this 60, 70, 80 years that I've got to live here in this life isn't all there is. So if I miss out on something, I've got more to come. And if I make a mistake, there's redemption that's on the other side, that it takes away the fear so that you can live the life that you were supposed to live. That phrase in Acts chapter 2, when Peter says that Jesus um, loosed the pain of death, is actually a word pain that is borrowed from childbirth. It is not a pain that you and I would use for the word suffering, like they're suffering in pain. It's a word that you and I would use for service, pain and service. It's the same word that a mother would use when she was in labor saying, I'm in pain. Her pain is her pain, but it's bringing forth life and she's willing to do that jesus death and resurrection was his pain that brought us new life a new way to live outside of the strength of the sting of death paul said in second corinthians 5 that through jesus christ we're reconciled back to god but it doesn't just stop there he says you and i through jesus can be reconciled made right with god but you're also given a ministry of reconciliation you see the gift of the resurrection doesn't stop with you it doesn't stop with God's grace and mercy granting you pardon forgiveness and eternal life that's not where it stops you see when you're given that reconciliation 
you're also given a ministry of reconciliation. You and I were called not to be cul-de-sacs, but conduits of grace. That grace comes to us and it goes to other people. We are called to bring as much of heaven to earth as possible. Jesus, when he taught us to pray, said it this way, God, let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You and I answer that prayer with the ministry of reconciliation to share that message. I am convinced this is why so many Christians are bored and resort to just bickering with each other in the church. We've missed the point that when we are reconciled back to God through the resurrection, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That means that we go make right what is wrong. We take suffering, we try to alleviate it. We take those who are hungry, we try to feed, we clothe those who are naked. We take the vulnerable like the widows and the orphans and we care for them. We see real suffering in our world and we enter into that suffering saying, heaven won't be like this and I don't want it to be like it now. And we long for a day when this world will finally be ruled by God ultimately in all ways. And we do everything we can to bring that about. Ultimately bringing a message to all people of reconciliation. You see, we'll give up our vain pursuits and our empty indulgences when we realize we've been given a ministry of reconciliation, a purpose that has great joy and great peace. Let me give you the last point. The resurrection is believable. The resurrection is powerful. It frees you to the life you were supposed to live. But the last one is this. The resurrection is reality. It's reality. Look down in verse 36. Peter says, let all the house of Israel, let everyone in earshot know this one thing and know it for certain that this one thing I'm about to tell you is not contingent upon you believing it. This one thing I'm about to tell you is not dependent upon if a majority agrees upon it. This is not a democracy. This is not a republic. This is not anything of that nature. This is not something that he is waiting for you to believe. Then it will become reality. He says, this what I'm about to tell you is real, whether you like it or not. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, with all certainty, that God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. The resurrection is your entryway into what ultimate reality actually is. You see, we live in this life so distracted, tempted, lured, distorted. Our vision gets muddy. We forget what's most important. We get twisted up in our priorities and our desires, don't we? We get all blinded. And the reality that God has made Jesus master and savior is like the spiritual smelling salts your soul needs to bring you back to reality of what's real. See, Genesis 1 and 2 give us this story of a world where God is king, God rules, and people are subject to him, are obedient. And that is reality. And in that reality, God calls that shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. And it doesn't just mean the absence of war. The word shalom means the presence of flourishing, meaning everything is right, everything is good, everybody is who they're supposed to be, that when God is king and everyone is listening to him and following him, the world is right. And in Genesis 3, we mess that up. Mankind replaces God as king and declares to God, we're going to take a shot at running our own life. We're going to be king. And that's what sin really is. And the moment we see that, we see envy, strife, and immediately in chapter 4, we see murder. We mess it up. And the rest of scripture tells us 
of God's plan to make this right. He comes to Abram and says, Abram, I'm going to bless the world through you. That word bless means I'm going to restore it to be right through you. He gives the law to tell us what life is supposed to be, even though we can't live up to it. This is how you're supposed to live. He introduces a sacrificial system to teach us that there are consequences for sin. Somebody has to pay. He gives us prophets to scream out that there is coming a day of the Lord. Let him be your king. Stop wasting time. Songs are written that there's going to be a day of the Lord. It's going to be great and glorious. Get ready for it. And then a homeless dude eating bugs shows up and says, the kingdom of God is here. His name's John the Baptist. It's here. And Jesus goes to the cross, into the grave, and resurrects. And the kingdom of God, as he promises, now within us. Wherever Jesus Christ is king, that's where his kingdom is. But look at me. Get this last point. There will be a day when this whole thing again is his kingdom. And I'm scared to death that there's a lot of us in here that might be embarrassed on that day and really disappointed that we live for everything other than him being king. This is ultimate reality. He is king. And you better get your life right with him. Because you're going to wake up one day and say, I missed it. That's what Easter is really about. And it changes your life when you realize he frees you from these insane fears of death that should not be there. He liberates you to live a life of purpose and mission, to go reconcile the world with what matters most, to alleviate hurts, to end suffering, to stand up for injustice. And to bring a message to people that somebody loves them more than they could ever imagine. And their life will be right when they get right with him. And if your life isn't right with him, don't miss the purpose of Easter. Let's stand and sing. You can come.